Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back, Francistans. I have been forgetting and meaning to tell you every week this month that this is our fifth year anniversary of the Francisca Show podcast. It is such an honor to be doing this podcast and doing this work. For all the new audience members out there, if you're new to the show, I started out interviewing Jewish women in the arts and entertainment industry. We've had a long journey since. We've pivoted into women in entrepreneurship and business. And that was a short little course. And then we came full circle back to Jewish Hot Topics, this time focusing on the entire Jewish community. And one little thing, this show also a couple years back started the No More Silence series. I give my platform to survivors of abuse and we hear their stories. And it's been such an honor doing this. I thank you so much for listening to the show, for sharing this podcast with your friends and community, help growing the show. I hope you continue to do so. If you like the show, you can rate it, review it on your app. Of course, if you're not subscribed to the show or follow the show on your app, make sure you do so so you don't miss a notification. And if you like the show and you'd like to support what I do, have in mind, I am a podcast success and launch coach and I help people launch their podcasts as well as grow and monetize them. It is an honor and pleasure and privilege to be doing this work and I hope to continue to do this. So thank you for appreciating it and supporting me through this. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Francisca Show, Francistans. Today on the show, we are here to discuss OCD and halacha, being from and suffering or being challenged with OCD with Dr. Jed Sieve. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting to talk about this because we like to talk about real issues, real challenges in the world, especially when they directly come into conflict with halacha. And it's such an honor to have an expert like yourself to speak on this topic. I know you have so much knowledge and expertise in this area. So let's start off the episode by you introducing yourself and telling us what your professional background is, your religious background, and we'll go from there. My name is Jed Sieve. I'm a clinical psychologist, a licensed clinical psychologist. My day job is I'm a professor at Swarthmore College. I mostly research and do clinical work with folks who have OCD and related disorders, by which I mean anxiety, body dysmorphic disorder, hoarding. And I live in Lower Marion, Pennsylvania, and part of the Orthodox community there. How did you get into this work? I got into this work by accident. I went to grad school to study child anxiety, and I discovered that working with kids means working with schools and with parents, and I didn't like that quite as much. And... It so happens that Philly has and had, especially at the time, a lot of really, I went to grad school at the University of Pennsylvania and Philly had at the time a lot of outstanding resources, both research and clinical for treating OCD with the additional benefit of being pretty close to places like Lakewood without actually being in Lakewood. So when I was working, for example, in Edna Foa's clinic at Penn, along with a couple of other people who were either from or are very familiar with halacha. We used to get a lot of referrals from the rabbis in Lakewood, sending people with OCD. And when OCD, when somebody who is religious has OCD, it's very fertile ground for those symptoms to latch onto. So there was a lot of religious 
manifestations of OCD and they would send them to us. So when I was in grad school, I already started getting involved in that sort of work. And you've been doing that ever since. I've been doing that ever since. So to take anyone who has very little knowledge or experience with OCD or what the manifestations would look like with religious lifestyle, how would you introduce this topic? I'll start very broad and just get everybody on the same page about OCD. OCD is a disorder, as the name implies, obsessions and compulsions. So it's characterized by obsessions and compulsions. Obsessions are intrusive thoughts, images, or urges, and they cause distress. And a lot of the time we mean anxiety or fear when we say distress, although other emotions can be involved as well. And the person feels the need then to do something about that distress. And those are the compulsions. So those are repetitive things that a person feels the need to do, perhaps according to rigid rules, but in efforts essentially to reduce the distress associated with the obsessions. So that can mean efforts to prevent feared outcomes. So maybe a prototypical example that comes to mind for people is somebody who has obsessions related to contamination that leads to anxiety and then they hand wash or they decontaminate in some other sort of way to prevent whatever the feared outcome is. But it can also be just trying to replace or get rid of or neutralize the obsessional thoughts themselves. So there are certain kinds of obsessions that most people aren't really worried are going to lead to anything in particular, but it's somehow wrong to have it and they, they don't want to have those thoughts. And so it's really an important functional relationship between the two. The obsessions are the intrusive thoughts, images, and urges, and those make you feel distressed, I'll say anxious for now. And the compulsions are the things that you do to try to reduce that. They tend to be at best effective in the short run. Usually in the long run, the compulsions actually perpetuate the problem. A couple little notes that might be worth paying attention to. First of all, compulsions can be mental as well. So they can be overt, observable, hand-washing type compulsions. They can also be more subtle, covert, mental compulsions. And so the distinction between obsessions and compulsions is not simply that one is the mental part and one is the physical behavior. You can engage in mental compulsions as well. So would an example to that be anything related with Kavana or any Averos that come from just thought? Well, so it depends. The intrusions that maybe I didn't have the right Kavana, maybe I wasn't Yotze, maybe this, maybe that, those are obsessions and those lead to the anxiety. And then mental compulsions that somebody might do might be to try to replace a bad thought with a good thought. Let's say somebody who, whenever they're davening, they get an intrusive image of Avodazara or something else like that. So they try to replace those thoughts or neutralize those thoughts. I think we usually think of little, subtle, even verbalized things as being kind of mental compulsions. So davening, prayers, you can use prayer compulsively. But really, OCD is opportunistic. It'll latch onto whatever it can. So in the same way that hand-washing is not inherently good or bad, it sort of depends how much you're doing it and what the context is. And if you're about to perform surgery, you're going to be scrubbing up and you should be, and that's appropriate. But if you're washing that way multiple times an hour because you have intrusive thoughts that maybe you touch something, a door handle where that might be contaminated or something, we would judge that to be compulsive. It's the same thing with, with prayer. So you can daven in a healthy way, but you can also have your OCD latch on to davening as a as something that is both the source of distress in an obsessional sense, but also can be used in a compulsive sense, repeating words, repeating prayers, going excessively slowly are some pretty common, easy to picture examples of that. So here's the obvious question. How do you pick up on what's a healthy level of observance and being maybe flipped out or very spiritual or very into mitzvot versus 
when it starts borderlining on unhealthy behaviors and thoughts? Yeah, there's no one criterion that can capture all of that well. Sometimes when I'm presenting to audiences that are not familiar with halacha or Jewish practice, I just start describing basically negelwasser uh, without calling it that and ask them if somebody told them that they wouldn't touch their eyes, mouth, ears, whatever, nose until when they wake up in the morning because they're afraid there might be some sort of tumma. Until they pick up a cup in their right hand, fill it, transfer it to the other hand, and like describe the whole thing. Is that a, a compulsion or is that a religious ritual? And by the way, in the OCD world, we use the word ritual almost interchangeably with compulsion. So that even just sort of highlights the problem. You know, you talk about religious rituals, we talk about compulsive rituals. In fact, I'll probably slip into calling compulsions rituals in this conversation. So how would you know? And the answer is it could be either, of course. And so the description of the behavior is not enough to know. So how can you figure it out? Well, one way to do it is, or one consideration is to benchmark against other people. So what are other people doing? And if you are exceeding that in some sort of dramatic way, that's one indication. It's not enough. There are a lot of things that individual, you know, might have extra meaning to you or less meaning to you. And certainly we tell stories of Gedolim who were exceeding community norms by a lot, but don't necessarily think about it as problematic. But it's, it's a good indication to start. It's a, at least a red flag. And we would pay attention as well to what motivates the behavior. So you wouldn't say that somebody who washes their hands 40 times in one hour is very clean. You'd probably say that they're engaging compulsions with anxiety. And so the, what motivates the behavior is pretty different when it's coming from fear, anxiety, stress, tension versus something else, fulfillment, something else like that. And functional impairment is, is huge. So most people, most other from people are able to live the life that they want to live consistent with their values, whether that means in Pesach preparations, even though they're not all exciting and fun to do or whatever else, davening, they're able to do that without so much impairment. And so the functional impairment is pretty extreme. There's actually a, a pretty great, great quote by Grinwald, who compiled a lot of letters and other information from the stipler. And he lays out some of these criteria pretty nicely, actually. He doesn't refer to it as OCD, but but it's interesting to see how he focuses on the motivation for the behavior as a sign of a problem. He says, if a person with these obsessional concerns goes and asks the opinion of a posake, the reply will not calm him, since he will continue to have many doubts that the authority did not hear him properly, did not understand his question sufficiently, or even if he did hear, did not understand this specific picture in its details, since he himself had not explained it adequately, etc. And there's no end to these doubts. And therefore, in order to avoid the fear of doubt, he's machmir with himself and repeats the act again. And so it continues, God forbid, every time getting harder and more distressing. Ordinarily, a person may occasionally find himself in a situation where it's difficult to carry out a commandment, so he cannot perform it with the usual appropriate pleasure, for this is the nature of man. He sees this as a challenge and on the next occasion will carry it out with pleasure, since he usually performs commandments with enthusiasm and pleasure. However, and this is the key, the person who, whenever he performs the will of the Creator, finds his soul and his energies contorted by feelings of discomfort, fear, tension, and misery over the carrying out of the commandment. And on the contrary, this is his usual state. And to carry out commandments out of joy is the exception. This then is clear proof this was not God's intention. You can think about things, that sort of stuff. That's, it's, it's fascinating to see that it's not necessarily saying that the behavior itself can't be right or that he's doing something 
behaviorally wrong, but if, if his experience of being from is driven by discomfort, fear, tension, misery, he's doing something wrong. So that's part of that motivation, a part of what I was saying. So what screams at me when you said, you know, measure yourself against other people? The problem is if you're flipping out in yeshiva or in seminary or wherever you are in life, and to be more respectful to the people who are going through their religious growth, the people around them are just not caring enough about Allah or they're not as serious as they should be. Everyone is relative to the people around them. Yeah, well, so first of all, that's why you need the other criteria as well. So it's not enough just to benchmark against the people around you. It also depends what's motivating it, and it depends whether it's leading to impairment. You're perfectly welcome to have a value that matters to you in a different way from some of the people in your immediate surroundings and to commit to that in a way that other people are not committing about religion or about other things too. And so the benchmark is a, is a sign it's a, it's a way to get a sense of whether or not this behavior is out of proportion in some way, but that doesn't mean that it's compulsive. It could be out of proportion in a way that's meaningful. And the other thing, if you're talking specifically about, say, somebody who's flipping out or in a setting like that, you know, who you're benchmarking against is a decision you can make as well. So just because you're in, you, you came into a certain setting with a group of people doesn't mean that they continue forever to be the group of people that are the appropriate benchmarks. Somebody can change in any direction, their observance, if we're talking about religion or anything else. And maybe at one point, the appropriate community to benchmark against is not the same one where they started. So somebody is, I don't know exactly what you have in mind with flipping out, but let's say somebody is shifting from one background into a more, I don't know, yeshivish background or something like that, or a community rather. So maybe at some point, those become the people to benchmark against. If we wanted to take a step back a little bit and categorize, does it have to come out both in a religious observance and in regular life? Or can it be exclusive in religious observance? Yeah, OCD uh, latches on to what's important to people. It's opportunistic, like I said before. And so lots of people who have OCD and are also religious have symptoms that latch onto religion. Sometimes that's in addition to symptoms that are secular and have nothing to do with religion. Sometimes not. Overall, even if we're not talking about this type of OCD in general, more often than not, people who have OCD have symptoms that cross different sort of categories or domains or, or what we like to call symptom dimensions. What would that look like? So there might be somebody who has some contamination symptoms and also some religious symptoms and also symptoms that relate to accidental harm and checking compulsions and that sort of thing, for example. But also over the course of the illness, over the course of having OCD over time, it can also sort of morph. So somebody, if I'm assessing a new patient, I'll often say something like, well, that's no longer a problem for me. Five years ago, I was really stuck on that, but now it's sort of changed and slashed onto such and such. So what we know, although people entertain the possibility otherwise, what we know is that religion does not really confer a risk in terms of being more likely to have OCD. But if you have OCD, and you're religious, it's likely to latch onto it. And that's really just true of any cultural variable. You know, like uh, in 1960, people with OCD weren't worried about HIV and AIDS. And then that became a really common sort of obsessional theme. And, you know, I've, I've seen in my work over the years, people having it latch onto COVID and, and swine flu and bird flu and whatever the specific things of that time, the, the concerns, the risks seem to be. 
And so studies that look at more religious cultures find much higher rates of religious versions of OCD, but still roughly the same rates of OCD. Let's talk about people's stories and not specifically your patients and clients, but what would the most common symptoms or obsessions and compulsions be? And maybe let's talk about different ages and different genders. Yeah, I'm not sure that I know the data on all those breakdowns. Just your um, personal experience. Yeah. So it's, OCD is heterogeneous and it will latch on to, I know it sounds like uh, my little mantra here, but it'll, it'll really latch on to whatever it can scare you about. Religious people often have, from Jews, some really common themes for OCD to latch on to include things like nadarim, making accidental nadarim about keeping Shabbos about various tumor-related things, including before davening, including mikvah and nidah-related things, davening, having the requisite kavana, that sort of stuff, being migade for or otherwise blaspheming in some Jewish sort of way. And I guess in general, the, the Jewish from versions of those are pretty behavioral, not surprisingly. We have so many behavioral requirements and proscriptions, again, fertile ground for the OCD to latch onto. So fulfilling those requirements sufficiently, et cetera. People from other religions with OCD about their religion, it might be a little less concrete. So like offending God or, you know, being evil, uh, worshiping the devil in some sort of general sorts of ways. But the, the really kind of four overall symptom dimensions that a lot of studies show with OCD, but a tremendous amount of variation within each of these. And one of them we we call washers, people who, who engage in a lot of uh, decontamination kind of compulsions and have a lot of contamination-related obsessions. But even there, within that group, there's so much variation in what it would latch onto. And sometimes the very same thing that is a trigger of anxiety for one person is something the other person uses as a compulsion. So a good example of that might be things like Clorox and Windex, Lysol sort of stuff. And obviously for some people with OCD, that's irrelevant to their OCD. But even for people for whom it's relevant, for some people, those are things that they use to decontaminate as compulsions to feel better. And for other people, those are potential carcinogens. And how do I know that that would be safe? And so they're seen as, as triggers of obsessional distress. The second category that we see in a lot of studies is this checking accidental harm sort of thing. I can still look a million different ways and checking can end up being not just checking door locks and, and, and stoves and if your hair iron is unplugged and that sort of stuff. But it can be things like your tefillin. Yeah, it's fill, aligning the tefillin or checking with a rub over and over to make sure that he, they understood your Shiloh right and you got the psak down correctly and that checking your learning that you didn't forget, that sort of stuff. The third category is unacceptable thoughts. And that includes all these, it's not our judgment that they're unacceptable, it's people's experience of them. Uh, those are a lot of the obsessions. People don't even want to have the thought. It's not just that having the thought makes them anxious because now I'm aware of some other risk, like with contamination. But what kind of a sick person is even thinking that? And so those thoughts are often sexual or violent or a lot of the religious obsessions. And then there's a category of more like symmetry, not just right ordering, arranging a sort of symptoms. But it can latch on to just about anything that you can think of. And is any one worse than the other? Does one overtake or they're all equally overbearing? Yeah, they each have their challenges. So for example, with contamination, regular kind of run-of-the-mill contamination obsessions and that sort of thing. So on the one hand, that's especially hard for people sometimes because it, it's everywhere. 
anywhere I go, I, I could be triggered and uh, it's all over the place and in any kind of social interaction or place that I want to go. And at the same time, because of that, it's it's very concrete and it's a little more easy to treat sometimes because it's very easy to do the exposure-based treatments that are most effective because it's easy to contaminate yourself and it's easy to do that in a graded way. And it's and uh, the compulsions are very often, although not always, more overt behavioral compulsions. You know, there's some advantages and some disadvantages. And it's like that for each of the symptom dimensions where there are unique challenges. And uh, often I have patients saying, you know, I just, I wish my symptoms were like that instead. And but they're all saying it about each other's symptom types because they all have special kinds of considerations and challenges. I guess what I would say is overall, if I had to pick one thing that's a particular challenge, it's when the compulsions are, are mental. Harder to recognize them, harder to tease them apart from the obsessions. And in treatment, which requires intentionally facing the obsessions while refraining from the compulsions, it can be extra tricky to try to refrain from mental compulsions. Okay, so let's unpack that a little more. What happens and what's the process like when someone comes in for treatment? At that point, they already had to do some sort of self-awareness check-in because you don't just wake up one day and say, hey, I'm OCD. Or is that how that happens? Yeah, well, I mean, it can range, but you're right. I would say most people who are coming to a specialist for treatment already have a sense that they might be struggling with that thing. They may not know exactly what it is or somebody else might have suggested it. A little different sometimes with kids. I don't really work much with kids, but sometimes... You know, parents can schlep a kid in. That doesn't happen as much with adults. Sometimes can happen. There's relational fallout from their OCD and their significant other is saying to them, I can't take this anymore. Either you're going to go for that, you know, get this taken care of or else I can't, I can't do it. That kind of stuff. So people are coming in with various degrees of insight. Some people have had treatment for OCD. Sometimes it's been lousy treatment. Sometimes it's been good treatment. Some people don't quite know what's going on and you can recognize that it's OCD, but it's always going to start with some version of an assessment. Even if somebody is coming in where they already think that they have a handle on what's going on, I mean, they may well, but I'm still going to do a fairly careful assessment. Usually for me, that'll take a couple sessions. Assessment overall, getting to know the person, and then really figuring out what's going on in terms of these symptoms. Is there a source from where it starts or is it just something genetic people are born with? Is it nurture or nature? That's my question. So in this in the sense that that most people mean when they say is it genetic? No. There's no gene for OCD. Is it something they're born with? Also depends what you mean by something they're born with. There are there no doubt there are inherited vulnerabilities that given the right circumstances can manifest as what we call OCD. But OCD is a description of a syndrome like everything psychiatric and psychological. And to quote a former mentor of mine who put it nicely, people like to talk about carving nature at its joints. I don't know if you're familiar with that expression, but trying to find sort of the natural breaking points and clusters of things in the world. And he said, you know, people like to talk about carving nature at its joints, but what if we're not dealing with turkey? What if we're dealing with meatloaf? And so it's kind of like that. There isn't a clean line between anything with OCD or any of these other related sorts of difficulties and somebody not having it. This is not like, you know, you're positive or you're negative with a pregnancy test, with, a, with an HIV test, with a COVID test or something like that. Everybody has intrusive thoughts. Everybody has weird intrusive thoughts even. They've done studies where they have people monitor their intrusive thoughts. And not only does basically everybody have them, but they thought, well, maybe, but maybe the intrusive thoughts people with OCD are having are like weirder. And so they had people with and without OCD record their intrusive thoughts and they had other people 
sort of blind to the, to the source of the thoughts, try to categorize the thoughts as this, this is probably a thought from somebody with OCD. This is probably a thought from somebody without OCD and they couldn't do it better than chance. So everybody has weird intrusive thoughts sometimes. Everybody experiences anxiety sometimes. If not, you, know, you might be a psychopath, which is its own separate, probably worse problem. So the idea that like OCD is a thing and it's categorically different from experiences that other people have and like you just have some gene for it, definitely not the case. Probably a lot of inputs into what makes the vulnerabilities manifest in this way, maybe versus another way or manifest at all. But also a more direct answer to your question with genetics is if you look at identical twins, if one has OCD and the identical twins by definition share all of their DNA with each other, the chances are considerably less than 50% that the other one will have OCD also. So that at least speaks to, I don't remember off the top of my head, the actual numbers, but that speaks to the degree to which it's not just there's a gene for OCD. So back to the treatment process. Okay. So we have the assessment down. I think that's where we left yeah. off. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I think, you know, at the end of any assessment, I'm going to, I'm going to give somebody feedback about how I see what's going on and what that would mean in terms of treatment and whether I thought I was the right person to be able to help them with it. And I'm going to give them a chance to ask those same kind of questions and make sure that it resonates with them and that they think also that working with me and in the way I'm suggesting would be the right way to go about doing it for them. And then we sort of make a treatment plan and, and do what we like to call psychoeducation, sort of reviewing the basic principles of treatment with OCD. And honestly, from a cognitive behavioral perspective more broadly, we don't care that much, except if there's a particular reason to care that's helpful for the patient's own narrative. We don't care too much about why it originally started. Because for the most part, and there's some exceptions with this, I mean, obviously, in some senses, if somebody has PTSD, the trauma itself is kind of when it started and it's going to be a huge focus of the treatment. With something like OCD, we can't know. Certainly, the science is not compelling that there's a simple answer to that. And we can't undo it anyway. But what we're going to care a lot about are the maintenance factors, the things that you're doing, not doing, that are happening that continue to maintain this problem and fuel the fire, especially in the long run. And especially because with OCD and anxiety as well, a lot of the short-term ways that people end up trying to manage or cope with the anxiety actually perpetuate the problem in the long run. So there's a real long-term, short-term trade-off there. When I talk about like psychoeducation, it's going to be very much focused on what, is, what usually maintains OCD and in your particular case, what the specifics are that map onto that. Because we're going to literally, in treatment, attack those maintenance factors. And so, for example, with OCD, obsessions lead to distress, anxiety, like I said before. And people have practiced for a long time feeling like when I have this trigger or this obsession, I'm going to get very anxious. And it's going to last until I engage in my avoidance, my reassurance seeking, my compulsions, which are the things that people are doing to try to reduce the distress. So they learn the association between the compulsions and the reduction of distress. That is poison though. That perpetuates the problem. The obsessions are not the problem actually. The compulsions are the problem. And so we're gonna do treatment in a way that's gonna target those two things so that people can basically train themselves even if they know intellectually that distress, anxiety from the obsessions are not in and of themselves harmful. They'll reduce on their own if you don't do anything about it and that the compulsions are not necessary for anxiety reduction, for preventing whatever it is that you're trying to prevent. And so we're trying to sort of 
disentangle or decouple both of those associations that have been learned. And the way we do that is really with the name of, of the first line treatment is called exposure and response prevention. Some people call it exposure and ritual prevention. And it's a more tailored, focused for OCD way of doing exposure therapy. But conceptually, it's not so much different from more straightforward things like how you'd get over a fear of dogs if you had one. So if you, if I told you that, you know, I'm terrified of dogs and I know you like dogs, you have a dog, like it's getting in the way of my life enough that I'm willing to actually try to work on this. What would you suggest? How can I get over my fear of dogs? Well, it says it in the name, exposure, education in safe environments and maximizing that slowly. Yeah. So you, you, nobody ever gets over a fear of anything by just talking about it. You need to do something to actually face that fear, whether that's a very concrete sphere, a dog, a snake, a spider, whatever, whether it's something that's a little internal body sensations, like in the case of panic disorder, where people are, their anxiety is often triggered by body sensations, something with their heart rate or with their breath or feeling dizzy, that sort of, whatever it is, just talking about it is usually not enough. You ever heard of somebody getting over a fear of dogs or spiders or something because they talked about it? Like, what's going to change? So you have to face fear. It doesn't mean you have to do it all at once. You can do it gradually. But when you're facing your fear, it also matters how you do it. So if you're facing your fear of something, but simultaneously engaging in what in the OCD world we're going to call compulsions, but more broadly, we might think of as safety behaviors or other kinds of avoidance, you're just going to practice the avoidance and you're not going to learn anything that you need to learn. So if you have panic attacks and every time you start to feel your heart rate going up, you get scared, oh my gosh, it might be happening now. So you sit down and you, you, you pop a clonopin and you take deep breaths or whatever it is that you do. And then your biggest fear is not actualized. Like you didn't have a heart attack or a stroke or whatever it was that you were afraid of. That's not going to get you anywhere because the next time you have those symptoms, you're going to think, well, I averted catastrophe by sitting down and taking my breaths and taking my clonopin. You haven't learned what would have happened otherwise. Similarly, with OCD treatment, if we go and we touch something that the person perceives to be contaminated and they get anxious and then on their way out of the room, they Purell. So first of all, the anxiety subsides, which is negatively reinforcing the avoidance because you're more likely to repeat things that give you relief from something unpleasant. Like when you get into the car, you're in a habit of buckling up to shut off the annoying beeping thing that happens until you do. But in addition, if I see the next day, I say, how'd it go? It was fine. You know, you were so afraid of X, Y, Z. Did it happen? No, it didn't. It didn't happen. I say, what do you make of that? You're not going to say, well, you know, maybe I had a distorted sense of it, or maybe I can handle this better than I thought. You're going to say, well, because I Purell. So you need the exposure to come along with refraining from engaging in the responses or the rituals, the compulsions, the safety behaviors, the avoidance, the reassurance seeking, all those problematic behaviors that in the short run might make you feel a little better or perpetuate the problem over time. I'm assuming people get better. Is this ever cured or is it managed and treated? Yeah, so that's it's tough to answer that question because people mean different things by cured. There are lots of people who, with treatment, can live basically totally normal lives. And are they still vulnerable to OCD? Yeah, probably. And what I encourage people to do as relapse prevention, for example, is to sort of check in with themselves from time to time and monitor when symptoms might seem like they're creeping back even before they get bad. And, you know, it's a silly metaphor, but I, I sometimes just think about like if you have a garden 
And, and if it's overrun with weeds, it's a huge pain to get all those weeds out. It might be a big effort, take your whole day, be sweaty and dirty. And, but let's say you've done that. So first of all, you probably don't want to leave a, a few weeds here and there just because they don't bother you so much because it makes it much more likely they're going to grow back. But also you're going to do yourself a huge favor if every few weekends you just walk by the garden area and if you see something starting to grow, a weed starting to grow, you just pull it out then. It's real easy to do before it all grows back and that way you can maintain it so it never really does. If you wait until it becomes a huge problem to address it again, which is understandable, um, but it, it's, it, you're going to make your life a lot harder in terms of having to deal with it again. So I think for a lot of people who have had successful treatment, if they can maintain some sort of approach of whatever the analog is to once in a while passing the garden, if you see anything starting to grow back, you pull it out. You can maintain really good success for a long time. The studies show that among people who complete exposure and response prevention, an adequate course of it, a very, very high percentage can be categorized as responders. In one really important study, they found 86% of people who completed ERP were classified as responders, but there can be a difference between responding to treatment and actually recovering fully, which is kind of what you're asking too. Those really high rates are the people who've completed it and are doing a whole lot better by whatever ways in clinical trials we just make those decisions. But there's a, a larger portion of people who still have some symptoms in the long run. Another way possibly that can be useful for people to think about it is like diabetes or any other sort of chronic thing where you can live a perfectly normal life as long as you sort of stay on top of whatever it is that you need to stay on top of for your health in that area. And there are times where it's a little bit more of a hassle. There are times where it's really not much of a big deal at all. I think that's a reasonable way to expect things to happen. There are some people who will tell you that once they're done with treatment, they're able to really maintain it and, and be more symptom-free for an even longer period of time. Forgive me if this is really basic, but how do people get over fears that are legitimate fears? For example, being scared of snakes is legitimate. I just probably haven't spent too much time thinking about my fear of them. So I might not classify myself as OCD about snakes, but if you put me in a room with one, I will not be happy about it. Yeah. Well, so what what makes a fear, I forget the word you use. Do you say reasonable? No, but that is a great word. How do you decide if a fear is? When your life's at risk. So how about your safety? So there are some snakes that might be a threat to your life, but there are lots of snakes that are not. But if you don't know, assume all snakes, <laughs> right? It's like if if this berry might be poison, do not do not take the risk of trying it. Yeah. Well, so maybe a more boring run-of-the-mill example is going back to the one about dogs. If I have a fear of dogs, there are dogs who attack people. There are lots of people who have pet dogs. So what would make somebody's fear of dogs pathological versus just afraid of a true threat? Which is why I brought up snakes. The answer to your question is going to get back probably a, to some extent to like distress and impairment and that sort of thing. Living a life that I think most of us, probably all of us, but I'll hedge a little bit. Living a life that I think most of us value requires us to take risk. You risk your life every time you drive. You've never heard of car accidents? Oh, I'll be really careful. You never heard of somebody's car tire blowing out or, or a drunk driver jumping the median and hitting you no matter how careful you're like. You're literally risking your life every, every time you cross the street. What if some car comes out of nowhere and hits you? And so you might be able to avoid some of that risk by just staying in a padded room your whole life. Well, that, that doesn't avoid all possible risk. But 
you're always making judgments to live a life worth living to you of what kinds of risk and how much risk makes sense to take. I don't know exactly how people do that, but presumably they're considering both chances like probability, like something that's very likely to happen. You'd probably be more hesitant and more cautious with than something that's very unlikely, but possible. And also just your own quality of life. What's necessary for a lot of people like us living in the society we live in, just driving and crossing the street is just necessary to do the things that we find important and make our lives valuable. And so that's a risk we're willing to take, even though it's a legit risk. And it's not because if it were to happen, it wouldn't be a big deal. If your car tire blew out and you got into a horrible accident, it would be a very big deal. It's not a nothing. It's just a pretty small risk that is necessary to live the kind of life you want. So sort of those considerations in combination with what I was saying before about just functional impairment. So I had, a, I used to live in, in South Florida. I had a student in South Florida who was terrified of lizards. And if you go visit Miami, you'll see that, that lizards are like ants just all over the, the sidewalk. So let's say she moves up to Philly. All of a sudden, no lizards unless she's going out of her way to find them. So does she have a phobia? Does she not have a phobia? I mean, she was functionally impaired in Miami. She wouldn't be functionally impaired up here. It would make sense to me if she were living up here for her to say, I'm not interested in treatment. The treatment's going to be worse than the problem. Every once in a while, when I'm somewhere where there's a lizard, I'll, I'll have to deal with my distress then, but I don't need to deal with the distress of the exposure to get over the fear. So she'd rather live with the fear because it doesn't impair her life. If she's living in Miami, she might make a different decision. So snakes, spiders, you know, if you are living just a fine life and rarely encountering snakes and the rare times that you do, you're willing to experience whatever distress you have. Why would I try to, to insist that you need to fix that fear? It's not impairing your life very much. But if you can't do basic things that you want to do, I don't know, play with your kid outside in the leaves or go into the garage or the basement or whatever, because what if there's a snake there? Or I know of somebody who jumped out of a moving car when they saw a spider on the uh, dashboard. So pretty likely that whatever kind of spider that was, it was safer to stay in the car on the highway with the spider on the dashboard, even if it was like a black widow, then jump out of a moving car. Right. So, so, or if you're not getting a root canal that you need because you have a phobia of needles or something like that. So then those are things that need treatment. So it's not so much about whether it's a reasonable fear or not. It is, that's part of it. There's no reason to try to treat somebody for a reasonable fear in the sense that, that it's not out of proportion. If you're a Marine deployed in Iraq and you're taking on fire and you're very, very afraid, I wouldn't say I need to treat your fear. Your fear is appropriate to the situation. I need to get you to safety. I'm not sure I buy your premise that a snake is more like that overall, but I think those are broadly the considerations. Okay. Well, you, you explained it and that's what I wanted out of that question. Okay. So two more things I'd like to address before we wrap up, if that's okay. I would really like to hear your perspective and your analytical perspective on watching from the sidelines. So COVID has definitely changed things up a lot and you're a professional in, in this area. What have you observed or thought was maybe ridiculous or maybe you started off thinking was reasonable and then changed your mind about, obviously everyone did, but is there anything professional that you can add to the conversation? Yeah, I'll tell you uh, a couple of thoughts come to mind. One is, I actually think that the first month or two of COVID was just an excellent lesson 
that can lead to empathy for people who don't know much about OCD. So if you all remember, before we really knew how uh, COVID was transmitted and we were all, I don't know, all, but, but lots of people were, every time you went outside and you touched some public handle, door handle, you were then Purelling or you were Clorox wiping down your, your takeout <laughs> food containers and packages and that kind of stuff. You get a taste there for what it might be like for somebody with severe contamination, OCD, all the time. This sense that like everything you touch might be incredibly risky in some incredibly severe way and you're not even sure exactly what it was. The once I've touched something with my right hand, so let's say to open that door or you know the supermarket, whatever, then sort of walking around holding that hand off to the side and not letting it touch your phone where your math is going to be or whatever else until you, you pure out it, et cetera. Those kinds of things might be a way for people to, to relate a little bit more to the inner world of somebody who's struggling with those sorts of things outside the context of something like, like COVID. But what I'll say is this, we actually did a study and several other people have published studies of the impact of COVID on, on folks with OCD. And on average, it is the case that OCD symptoms got worse from COVID. Some studies show that specifically in areas related to contamination, which is pretty understandable. And I think a lot of people, myself included, were expecting. Some people show that that's the case even in many other symptom dimensions of OCD too. Maybe that's just overall stress or overall something or other that it got worse. But I've also encountered clinically and had conversations with colleagues who have too, folks for whom it went the other way. And actually, they felt either better prepared for COVID because of their treatment for OCD, or like finally everybody is taking the precautions that I've always been taking, and I don't have to worry that they're not, and several other kinds of variations like that. So again, that can differ person to person. There were folks with OCD for whom COVID was not a particular challenge, surprisingly. But on average, it was, it was something that made almost all kinds of obsessions harder for people and, and probably especially the contamination ones. And is there anything you can offer from a perspective of somebody who watches people who become from observant Bali Chuva? Do they have any unique experiences? I've observed many Bali Chuva throughout my life. I grew up in a Kiev environment. Very often you have the firm from birth people observing things with a little bit less care and accuracy. Sometimes, obviously, not everyone about everything, but Bali Chuva are a bit more precise, perhaps, or careful. What would you comment on that? I don't know. I don't know a lot about the process of becoming a Bali Chuva. I've read a little bit of research that's tangentially related to what you're asking, but it's so different person to person. The reasons that people are drawn to Judaism are different or if they're already very Jewish, the reasons people are drawn to halachic observance differ so much. Uh, there are definitely people for whom the warmth, the community, the you know Shabbos tables is a, is very appealing, and sometimes maybe people who are from from backgrounds where that wasn't something that they had a lot of, and and there are people who are coming from from totally different places. So it's really hard to say. There is research overall on religion and psychology that I don't know super well, but usually it finds that religious observance is associated with less anxiety, less stress, less depression, and that sort of thing. Just on averages, lower rates of suicide, that kind of stuff. And it's, you know, I think it's intuitively 
plausible why that's the case. If you believe that there's a God who cares about you and everything, like you can maybe cast some of your stress off and, and that kind of thing. But it's also the case that when people have religious struggles and religious conflict, maybe in their relationship with Hashem for whatever reason or their belief system or something like that, that religiosity can be associated with more of those mental health challenges for people like that. There's, there's a saying that people sometimes invoke for that. Religion comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comforted. I'm not sure that's exactly the same thing, but, but religious conflicts can be like this. And, and what I do observe with OCD when it latches onto religion is that sort of thing can happen. I, in my own data, people with scrupulosity, this type of OCD focused on religion or moral things, report higher levels of anxiety, stress, depressive symptoms, several personality disorder traits than people with other kinds of OCD, not just people without OCD. So it's a threat to self in some ways, right? Like contamination, if I obsess that I might be contaminated and that might harm me or harm someone else, that might be an awful thing. I might be very scared, very anxious about it, but it's not about who I am. But if I have obsessional religious doubts, if every time I dive in uh, Shimon Asra, I'm picturing crosses and Jesus and whatever, if I'm if I'm having uh, like that unacceptable thought category I referred to before, people experience as a threat to who they are, which is sort of a different sort of distress than just a threat about what might happen. And it's also the case then that for people with scrupulosity, religion can simultaneously, or God really, can simultaneously feel like a source of comfort and a source of distress, right? It's the thing that makes me, like that quote I was reading before from Grinwald, like that the stress, tension, misery, of the experience of halacha or of davening or of preparation for a yanta. Yom Noram, not surprisingly, is super hard for a lot of the folks I work with. They feel like life and death for them and everybody they care about is on the line and they can't get it right. And, and so those things that for other people might be very meaningful and comforting or help them develop a relationship with Hashem end up feeling like they have an emotional, at least, response that's kind of the opposite. It reminds me, I'm not, I'm not making a data-driven claim here, but it just reminds me of attachment styles we talk about even with kids. Talk about secure attachment and insecure attachment. And there's a group of people who have a certain kind of attachment style that's often associated with parental neglect or abuse, where it's disorganized. Like they want to run to mom when she comes back into the room at, when they're in a situation where they were scared, but, but it's almost like a love, hate, push, pull. I want, I want to be with her and I don't. And that's because mom is simultaneously functioning as a source of comfort, but also a source of fear in that kid's life. And so when OCD latches onto religion, religion can sort of feel like that for people while they're in the moment. And so one of the goals of treatment is actually to help people disentangle the religion from the OCD and violate the OCD so they can cut it out, so they can live the life that they value and that's meaningful to them overall without sort of worshiping OCD masquerading as religion. Does it bother you when people use the term OCD lightly or they're using it as exaggeration? It bothers a lot of people a lot. So the International OCD Foundation that I'm very involved with, every year they have sort of an awareness a week OCD awareness, and they really push back during that week on things like, oh, I'm so OCD, I'm so OCD, and, and you know, little cute memes 
that are like about having pencils misaligned or something. It's, I think people feel like it really trivi trivializes the experience and it's very invalidating and, and that sort of thing. And in a way that I'm sure people uh, in the eating disorders community feel when people talk about anorexia, like it means that you're skinny and watching your weight and, and schizophrenia when what you mean is you changed your mind and that sort of thing. You asked me if it really bothers me. I think like people aren't coming from a bad place. So I think it's an insensitive thing to say really bothers me is probably an overstatement, but there are a lot of people who it doesn't really bother quite a bit. And so I try to avoid talking in that way and would encourage others to also. Well, thank you so much for this conversation, for coming on to the show. I hope a lot of people were able to learn a little bit more about what you do and how people can become a little bit more self-aware about themselves or about the people around them that may need help and may encourage them to get it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening until the end. If you feel like we did not go into enough depth for you in this podcast, please respond with your questions and we'll try to do a follow-up episode if this is of interest to you. Do you remember we had CP Handler on who talked about her work in Juvie? Well, guess what? We are doing a follow-up episode with some of her clients. So stay tuned for that. We're also working on the third part of our Aliyah series. Unfortunately, I was not able to get the guest on who gave me a half promise he would be coming on. We lost that opportunity, but we do have a great guest with a great episode coming out to complete that series. And we have some other great episodes planned for you. So stick around. Thank you for being a supporter of the show. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to check out the backlog of this podcast and check out the podcasts on Jewish Coffeehouse Network. Intimate Judaism, Chochmat Nashim, Orthodox Conundrum, and Let My People Eat. I hope to see you in the WhatsApp group and tune in next time. Have a great week.